matter, if you want to make material energy synonymous with matter, I suppose it is, but it's a rather limited way of speaking about it. These modes, the modus operandus of the, of the material nature in relation to consciousness that animates it. I've given the example before that if a man or a woman sits down before the television and turns it on, then the television has a life. Otherwise, without the viewer, it doesn't have a life. Nonetheless, sometimes when the viewer turns on the television, the television takes over the viewer's life. And you have to go and say, hey, get a life. Or you can watch television all the time. So he's captivated by the machine that he himself animated and turned on. So Krishna has explained, we, we turn on the material nature. We're animating it. But nonetheless, it suspends our animation in terms of all that we could be, all the movement that we could have. We are like kind of frozen like ice and water. We could be like water, but we're like ice. So ice is good for making water cold. Water is good for so many things. So our life under the influence of material nature is something like that. We're frozen in terms of our potential. All the week we're cold-hearted. To use the heart analogy we were using earlier, hard-hearted, cold-hearted. So, we've turned it on, but it's taken over our life, and we're deluded by that. So, this then, this modus operandi is the way that material nature conducts itself in relation to the jiva who turns it on, is, is threefold. This is the idea. We don't find this idea in modern science, but there may be some, something remotely similar that we could draw from modern analysis of of matter to help in a contemporary way understand the idea of the modes of nature. So we have sattva, rajas, and tamas. So sattva is a kind of a clarity and um, intelligibility. So physically speaking, all things have an intelligibility by which they make themselves perceptible and known. So this is sattva, then. These modes govern on... We have two dimensions of our material self, psychic and, and physical. Physiological and psychological. So these modes are operative in both. It's talking about them physically. So all things have some intelligibility by which they are intelligible, understandable that they exist. They, this is... Sattva, all things have some movement, everything's moving. So some energy and some resistance to movement, some mass, some inertia, something like that. So this maybe help us to get some idea of how we could speak about these modes in relation to modern uh, thinking about material nature. It's intelligible and it's different forms it it has it's moving it has movement and has resistance to movement mass inertia so sattva rajas and tamas and then in the psychic dimension there's clarity of thought and purity and uh, and then there's the, the the drive to achieve rajas 
and then there's the need for rest, dhammas. So one thing, talking about it like this, the one thing should be clear is that it's not that these modes are all, like the tamaguna is all bad and the sattvaguna is all good. It's limited in its goodness and it all, they all play a part. In other words, we're all, our psychic and uh, psychological and physical, physiological dimensions are constituted of these. Hmm? You want enough sattva that you have enough clarity of mind to not be satisfied with a world that doesn't endure. It takes some of the drive out to be, to accomplish some of the drive. <laughs> you understand? If you don't have enough sattva to feel uncomfortable in a plane of existence that doesn't endure, then you have no impetus for, for spiritual, no, no negative impetus for spiritual life, and we need that. We need positive impetus and we need negative impetus. Do you follow me? So, this is, this also tells us something about intelligence, so uh, it has a quality to it. There may be very intelligent people, there are certainly many intelligent people, more intelligent than myself, by far, and more educated and so forth, but they may have little sattvic influence in their intelligence, so it's erotic intelligence to expand, to, to do things, to accomplish, to to invent or, or whatever, and for what, but for what purpose? So it's a qualitative consideration then of, of body, of mind, of intelligence that we um, can bring into, into play when we talk about the modes of material nature. It's, um, it's a very, very interesting uh, concept. has a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of scope for explaining these uh, modes of material nature in contemporary society in a way that would be compelling. Of course, in the Gita we have then a society that corresponds with the influence of the modes of material nature on the psyche and on the, on one's physiology that that um, merit warrant certain uh, type of lifestyle and activities and so forth, and they all work together. And that's called varnashram. But the center of that varnashram is what? Really, the center of it is sattva. How is that? Because if a man or woman is situated in work that corresponds with their psychic reality, they'll be in balance. And sattva is about balance. So for a sudra to be a sudra is for a sudra to be in sattva as much as he or she can be. Do you understand? And this sattva gives clear thinking. So the Varnashram is meant to give clear thinking that the direction in life is back to home, back to Godhead. And we work here in relation to that. This will be the goal. So it's the clear goal of, in other words, what is the heart of Varnashram? That is Vishnu, Vishnu Aradhanam, Haritoshanam, Sangsidir, Haritoshanam, Bhagavatam says. All your activities culminate in this, this satisfaction, the tosh, toshini, the satisfaction of Vishnu. Just so that sometimes the body is given as an example. You have the Brahman head, and you have the Chatriya arms, and you have the Vaishya belly, and the Sudra legs, but the heart of the whole thing is Hari Toshanam, the satisfaction of Hari. So, 
from this you can understand that to be situated according to in work that corresponds with situated physiologically let's say in terms of action and working senses in a way that corresponds with your psychological nature you will be in balance so it's really a sattvic idea the whole idea <laughs> to give clear vision even though there are the divisions and people want to be brahmins and so sutras or whatever you know it's it shouldn't be like that. Whatever is the, your best situation, from there you'll have the most clarity, you'll have the most balance from which to proceed. And of course, we're not talking about thinking about erecting the Varnashram society, but we are interested in balance. And well, that's what this sattva is about, to bring about balance. There are, I've given in my commentary in the Gita later on in the 14th chapter, some examples from, like for example, Freudian psychology, there's Eros and Thantos. He recognized these two influences in the psyche of 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 of, of, of humans, heroes towards towards passion and desire and thanatos is kind of like the Thomasic side, the dis- distraction and whatever entertainment, intoxication. So there's kind of a parallel there in the psyche. He was recognizing these type of influences. And he didn't have a third, sattva, but he did have a third, an unspoken third, which was what? The balancing of the eros and the thantos, which is what enabled people to accomplish things in a healthy way. So that balance is the sattva, the yin, the yang, in the, in the, in the Tao, Taoism, for example, is another, another instance of that. The balance of the yin and the yang, this is what, they don't have a name for it, but we call it sattva, something like that. So balance. Uh, if you, I've given an example before. Gaudiya Vaishnavism is about like leaping up and touching the stars. So you have to both feet on the ground to start with. If you have one foot on, then then you might jump and fall down altogether. Better to have good firm standing materially. When someone comes asks me for help, guidance, initiation, I always want to know about their material situation. Does it have balance? If it doesn't, then I won't hesitate to first make your situation a little more, not always, but <laughs> a little concern. If your situation is balanced materially, then you'll be in a better position to practice. Otherwise, if it goes all out of balance, then, then uh, you won't have the, the peace of mind and so forth to, to practice. So this kind of horizontal development is also required for vertical growth. You have to make a a foundation in order for the building to go up. You have to spread it out and go down a little bit and spread out and then go up. So this is kind of the heart of the whole uh, Varnashram idea. And um, as I say, we can't direct that, but we do seek to help people get uh, balance. And um, so here Krishna says that deluded by these modes, then people don't understand me. We often talk about you want to get over the out of the modes of passion and ignorance, but you do need some sleep out of the mode of ignorance. So it's also good for you, some sleep. So a little bit of sattva, a little bit of rajas to do something, but the more the influence of sattva, then the more the clarity of mind and the, and the tendency towards, towards virtue for its own sake. And this is the bridge then to transcendence. 
I've written about this in a thoughtful and interesting way, if, if you'll allow me to say so, in my commentary on the fourth sloka of Shikshastakam. Nadanam Najanam, fourth, is it the fourth? Nadanam Najanam Nasundarim Kavitam Bhadavadishkamai Mamadanmani Janmanishwari Bhavatat Bhakti Rahitakitvi Modes of nature, the Dharma, the Kama, Moksha, the correspondence between them, between Satchit and Nanda, Ladini, Sandini, Sambit. It's all organic affair. Again, Krishna's woven into the fabric of material nature. And he's above and aloof from it at the same time. That's why, of course, Raj Brikshit, beginning of the fifth canto, he wanted to know about material nature. He asked Sugadev, tell me about, about material nature. I know it's one of the shaktis of Bhagwan, and so by hearing about it, my love for him will, will grow. My fascination with him will grow. Tell me about it in some some detail. And then, of course, Sugadev launches into a, into a description of, of what he says. Is basically, in a nutshell, he said, i tell you what it is. It's a transformation of the modes of nature, a magical transformation, always in, in, in flux. And um, other than that, this is what the historians uh, of the time ha- have said about, for example, the cosmos. So then he begins to describe the cosmos as it was thought of by the leading astronomers of the time, something like that. But it, he prefaces it by saying, it's a combination of the modes of material. It's endlessly mutable. What can I say about it? It's one of Bhagavan Shakti's. It's fascinating. I agree with you. I'll say what I can. So you can see also the scientific communities this, this in Western civilization lost in studying material nature. It's even just a tiny aspect of it. It's fascinating. This is Vishnu Maya. And under that influence, then, it may be difficult to find him, although he's everywhere. Like I said, those mathematical laws that the world's governed by, they're there to be found out. Suddenly, he sees fit to give Ein- to tell it to Einstein with the relativity, and then you ta- they will tack his name onto it, but it's, it's Krishna's law of relativity. So, and just see, just see the, a, a spark of inspiration. Someone really wants to know in a particular way. Krishna says later on in this text that according to the way that people want to worship, then I make their faith strong, and they'll achieve what they want. He's speaking about demigods. He also speaks about himself. And if they want me, they'll get me. Pick whatever form you want, whatever, whatever, how you want to serve Krishna, and go for that. He'll make your faith strong. He'll make it possible for you to... Nam is Chintamani, so... You want to be Krishna's friend? Go for it. You want to be the maid of Radha? Go ahead. Something like that. Take good guidance and all. Do it in the right way, but you'll get it. And so it is also then, if you want to know about material nature, then he may give you the spark of genius. E, what is it, equals MC squared in the whole world, scientific world, got turned upside down, just like that. Einstein said, I didn't know what to think. Nothing worked anymore. I knew it was right, but nothing else worked. All the other systems, it just seemed like... They got unplugged how we were thinking about things. and People still trying to digest this quantum theory and so forth. Nobody knows what it is. I read a scholar uh, 
few days back, said, nobody can tell you what, no, no one can say, to the, to the satisfaction of, of everyone, <laughs> what it is. So it's endlessly mutable material nature, fascinating, fair. And although we are fixed in our thinking often about it, I think we are, where the world is, in a moment the whole thing can change. Something else can be shown about it and everything will change. Like the Copernican Revolution. I mean, the, the, the earth was moving. This was just like made everyone's head spin as well. They thought that we were the center of the earth, human-centric, earth-centric, geo, geocentric, I guess. And Copernicus was was rejected by both churches, Catholic and Protestant, based on the Bible. Luther quoted the Bible, did you? He quoted the Bible. He's, the earth is still, or something like that. It was, uh, it was uh, bent on it. And he, Copernicus, this was a huge thing in human society, human history, huge, huge. His insights and all didn't come to bear for quite some time after he passed away and to be accepted and so forth, and the implications of it were just just enormous. So one small thing, I guess it's a pretty big thing, but <laughs> when, but the whole world was world was working on a misperception, uh, assumption of what it was like, how their physical, whatever, situation was like, working. People were still eating, taking rest, and the whole, they didn't have to know everything about it. They use the knowledge about it in ways that have become questionable. You know, a little knowledge can be a problem. <laughs> if you're not an honest person, you know, a little knowledge, if you don't have enough sattva, a little knowledge could be, could be dangerous. So at any rate, we have a kind of a, tend to have, our think that we have firm standing, as I was speaking this morning, grounded in this world, and what we hear about it and so forth. But it's, I mean, it was even, it's even concluded in this past century that, who is that fellow? Popper? And then Kuhn, they, they, they demonstrated that you can't know anything by science. You cannot know anything conclusively by science. That's how the whole modern world is, is, is kind of coming apart, so to speak. So, you can know something, I, I'm of the opinion, but, um, but um, if one scientist gets one bit of stroke of genius, it's so vast, what is material nature, sees it from a different light, then everything could change dramatically. It's happened in the history of the world, the recorded history. So fascinating material nature. It's, it's understandable that Prichet Marsh wanted to know something about it. It's Vishnu Maya. This uh, Yudhisthira is said to have said in Mahabharata that, that uh, when asked what is the most wonderful thing, he said, oh, that is the Vishnu Maya. That people are dying all the time and they act as if they're not. This is Vishnu Maya. This is the kind of Vishnu, influence of Vishnu Maya he's talking about here. Busy, busy. For what? Pujapachitamar said, I was reading this morning that uh, the Prabhupada told him they're busy in New York building so many skyscrapers, but, but they won't live in them. They're building so many big buildings, but the buildings will outlive them. What is their effort for? Some extended sense of material self, I suppose at best, but are they working in their own personal interest? We should build a house in a place where there's no death, where the building won't come down. We should make an investment there. 
you may question whether whether such a place exists, but you can be sure of one thing, it's not here. <laughs> you won't be able to make that kind of investment here. They're not taking those kind of investors who are looking for that. That real estate is not available here. Yes, we do posit a consciousness of being an ontologically different, categorically different from matter. Can we prove it? Can we prove that consciousness is different from matter? We have some way of proving. We, we offer at least some method through spiritual practice and so forth. And, and uh, I suppose you could line up the practitioners over lifetimes and test, see if it's working. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long procedure uh, to, to rise above material nature and so forth. But we, at least we offer, yes, we have a, we have a methodology and, and it is demonstrable. And the opposite opinion is that consciousness is just some point where matter becomes alive. It's an epiphenomenon of the brain. But can they prove it? Not yet. Hasn't been proven. So there are only theories about consciousness. That's all there are. There are only theories. So the theory of the Gita is as good as any. Maybe it's better. Where does it come from? This is the Shabda, so... That is a theory. It is not coming from a human mind. You may not have faith in that, but there's a lot to be said for such texts. You might want to think again. There are thoughtful people that consider that such a thing exists. Revelation. What does it mean anyway? Revelation. We say everything's in the book. It's a little hard to put your head around that. All the answers. Well, in one sense, it means. Here's a definitive way to speak about it. There's everything in the book that you need to make your life perfect. So do try it, apply it, become perfectly happy. Revelation is giving perfect knowledge in this sense because everyone only wants to be perfectly happy. That is the perfect knowledge. All action is informed by knowledge. So if I have the knowledge how to be perfectly happy, then I have perfect knowledge, right? Then I have reached the end of knowledge. So we're saying this is what revelation gives comprehensive knowledge comprehensive knowing. Everything can be known from Shastra. This is the point of the Gosamis. Sense perception is defective and reasoning is limited also. From Revelation, everything can be known. So then we go in there and we try to find everything in there. <laughs> but we don't know what everything is. We don't know what, to, what we should be looking for. It's one-pointed. Everything is one-pointed. I want to be happy. We are joy-seekers by nature. We want to live we want to exist. We sense that we exist. And we want to be conscious of the of our existence. And in the context of being aware of our existence, be aware of the purpose of our existence. So we exist. We're aware of it. We're not fully aware of it. Therefore, we're afraid. We have some fear. If we knew the extent to which we existed, we would have no fear. So self-realization means to know the extent to which you exist. There is no death. Philosophy and more spiritual practice, spiritual philosophy and spiritual practice, applied knowledge, this is the way to end death. And beyond that, joy. This is the purpose. We, we exist. We can be aware of it, that we exist, and we exist for a purpose, and we can realize the purpose. Happiness, this is the pursuit of everyone. Everything, all animation, is only in pursuit 
of happiness. That is the perfect knowledge. If you have that, you have everything, isn't it? We are only acquiring things, moving here and there, trying to know things for one purpose. So in this way we can understand. Shastra give everything. Revelation can give everything. And that there are some good examples in the history of the world of happy people with nothing. They have nothing, but they're happy. We can be thoughtful about that. Where that where is that being derived from? And Naranam, Najanam, Nasundra. They don't want anything. They don't want all the things that we want because we think they'll make us happy. The way we have a Guru Parampara and we think this we have a good track record here of happy people. You may not get, be able to get inside them, but you can see outside they don't want anything. Amikichit China. I can tell you, my Guru Maharaj didn't want anything. He didn't want anything. He only wanted to celebrate what he had. And that's the sharing of that. He just wanted to fight for Krishna. <laughs> this idea, something like that. Not even really just preoccupied with saving souls in a Christian sense. He just wanted to glorify Krishna. That's all. Let me establish Krishna, who he is. Here it makes a bold statement. But we just read the verse, uh, I'm everything. Nothing, there's nothing superior to me. All the world is like pearls on the thread. I'm the thread. It's all resting in me. Prabhupada armed with such, we may doubt. It's Krishna God. Some, someone wrote me and asked, you know, Shankaracharya, he, he commented on the ten principal Upanishads. But Krishna's not even mentioned there. So, why should we accept that he's a divine? He's divine. There's, there may be some doubt, even amongst people who, who seem to be familiar with the texts and so forth. Did you know that? Did you know? Do you know what the ten principal Upanishads are? Did you know that Krishna's not mentioned? <laughs> of course, I, I said, well, who says they're the ten principal ones? <laughs> who, who made that determination? They say they, they, are, they say they're the ten that is the one point. And secondly, he is mentioned there. It's an obscure verse that people debate the context and so forth, but it is mentioned, Krishna, Devakiputra, Krishna. So the answer, fellow wrote me back also. Then I had to write him back again with further answer. But as I explained there, I said to him again, first of all, these are not the ten principal Upanishad. What makes an Upanishad a principal Upanishad? If the Veda, if the Puranas are the fifth Veda and they seek to explain the Smriti, speak, seeks to explain the Shruti, then whatever is predominant in the, in, the, in the Smriti, in this case the Puranas, that must be what the Shruti is about. So Krishna is quite prominent in the Puranas. In fact, we give a whole Purana called the Bhagavad Purana. It means the Krishna Purana. It's all about the Krishna, whole Purana. And it's the best of all of them, objectively. The nature of the language, the measure of the theology, and and so forth. The social cutting edge, oh, even if you knew, what is the social cutting edge of the Bhagavatam in the, amidst the Puranic literature? It's very like up to date and breaking the bonds of of social uh, uh, norms. Anyone can go, gopis can go and they get the highest reward. 
You understand? Crossing over the Varnashram and so forth. Such an exciting book. And this is all about Krishna. This is the main Purana. Srimad Bhagavatam Amalam Pramanam Amalam Puranam Amalam Pramanam Paramahamsa Sanghitam Srimad Bhagavatam Amalam Puranam All about Krishna. So the Shruti must be about Krishna. Otherwise, well, you know, how many times is Indra mentioned in the Shruti in the Veda and how many times is Vishnu mentioned? Do we keep track? Then you find Indra is mentioned many more times. Does, the, does anybody think Indra is the Supreme Personality of God? Has anybody written a commentary like that? Everybody except Vishnu, because the quality of the utterance is, is different. Om Tad Vishnu Paramam Param. So as we mentioned, for example, Vishnu is mentioned throughout the Veda, less than Indra. But in the Puranas, Vishnu is mentioned more than Indra. Because the Puranas are explaining what the, what the Veda is about, what the Shruti is about. And it's in the Purana that that Vishnu has been identified with Krishna. And who said those are the ten principal Upanishads? The most important Upanishad might be the one that corresponds with what the, what the Purana is bringing out. So we put light on Gopal Tapani. You say you're not mentioned much in the Shruti. There's a whole Shruti text of all about Krishna only, Gopal Krishna. It's one of the principal 108 Upanishads. And everybody agrees... There's a, there's a principle 108. I don't know who decided there was a principle 10. <laughs> maybe Shankar, or maybe some scholar afterwards. So is Krishna, the divinity of Krishna, this is the question. He makes a bold statement here. I am nothing superior to me. And then he says, Daivye Shagunamayi, Mamamaya Durataya, Mamebe Prapadyante Mayamaitim Tarantite. No man cometh to the Gogoloka except through me. <laughs> no man leaveth the material world but by me <laughs> he says <laughs> he says Daivihesha gunumai that bewildering net of maya made of the modes of nature that doesn't enable people to see me that's my maya mama maya and it's daivam I'm the divine backing behind that you cannot uh, undo that puzzle you cannot unlock that I hold the key no man comes out of that except through me. It's right there, he said it. <laughs> so, this is he's a good candidate for God. The sacred texts have said so. We shouldn't make light of those sacred texts. These are powerful, uh, a huge, ex- extraordinary body of, 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 of knowledge. That's the, that's the inheritance of the earth. It doesn't belong to just India. It's, it's, it's just for everyone. And yes, and go, and, go, and go to the source, but this is my point, right? That if you apply yourself in terms of that, then you will become happy. You will become self-realized. We have some means to verify our idea about consciousness. The idea that it's epiphenomenal of the, of the brain and that, <laughs> and that the whole... <laughs> I mean, this is the theory. You should understand that everything is... There is nothing. There is no meaning or purpose to life. Then you have people like, you know, Camus and Sartre and all going mad in their existential dilemma. We feel like we're alive, but we're not. Alienation of humanity. Some of that 
Finnish, you know, Scandinavian depression. Something like that. <laughs> hmm? <laughs> yes, we feel like we're alive, but we're not. And nothing else is either. We're the only thing that feels like we're alive. We're out of sync with everything. So, the only thing that has any meaning is the struggle of feeling like I'm something, but alive when I'm, I'm actually not. This is the problem. <laughs> Passing through in human history. Oh, and this is the result of this, this, of going in this direction. It's not a happy end. It doesn't bring, it hasn't brought any surety to human society, any certainty. We're left after hundreds of years of moving in this direction with only, only uncertainty. Nerve-wracking uncertainty, driving, driving those who think about it deeply, like Camus, I think he was, was he French? Suicide. That was the only thing that made any sense. So, I mean, you know, it's worth considering that these old books, they talk about consciousness, Consciousness is also talked about in Western civilization, the different idea that neither has proof that the other will accept. I mean, science will, ex- will accept that they don't have proof either to what is consciousness. They won't accept our proof, but after all, it takes some objectivity to make yourself part of the experiment and follow the book, and it takes a long time. And, and without enough sattva, then you don't have enough time to to think, to invest, to be patient. So we have some means anyway to demonstrate what is what is our idea in our old books, this consciousness that is ourselves, and it's different from matter, and that by coming out from underneath the material nature, how? By taking shelter of this person, Mr. Transcendence, Mr. Joy, Mr. Consciousness himself, the sun of which we are, the ray only, can dissipate the cloud of our our confusion because he created the cloud, the cloud to start with. He has the key. Sun sun makes the cloud, right? Out of water and sun makes water. <laughs> Depends how you look at it, but but it can dissipate the cloud. We can make make then our sambanda with the sun of Krishna. And we have a little lineage of examples like this. Happy people, contented people. And speaking for this purpose only, kind of an kind of an overflow of their happiness to share it. So this is a bold statement of Krishna, but the fact is, Krishna is the personality of God, and the sacred texts say so. I know there are other sacred texts to say other, otherwise, but it is really, to be honest with you, a fantasy, a fabrication only, an absolute, complete fabrication. If they were to follow Jesus, it would be good the ideals and so forth, the whole fabricated idea of what it was about and all that. Therefore, it has no standing. This has standing, even in the modern world, even in face light of so many findings and whatnot that, that have caused the Christian revelation to be pushed to the background. You know, the, whatever, the, the human input on the person of, of, of the Christ and his good... Extraordinary character and teaching and so forth. That is, a, that is another thing. Purimarsh once wanted, wanted a book written, wrote Purimarsh about Krishna, that Krishna is the supreme god. It's really an interesting, I don't know, fascinating thought to me. Like to, 
Krishna is, 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 I don't always think of him as God, but as God, he's God. To convince people of that, it seems hard, doesn't it? Krishna is God, he plays a flute and has a coward and all. We can, and this is what it says here. Yet no man cometh out of the material world except to me. Mama maya durati mami ve papadinte maya metam tarantite. But it's backed up with so much, so much other uh, thoughtful, insightful information. He says, I'm superior to material nature. You can only come out of it from me. It belongs to me. And then he goes on to explain it also in ways that are quite, quite uh, compelling and fascinating. In a nutshell, what is material nature? Yet we may, we may go and investigate it from so many angles and talk about it in so many ways. But in in a, in essential way, the texts are talking about it, the influence of material nature upon ourselves, how it makes us, how it puts us in such an embarrassing situation. And we're fond of being thoughtful and intelligent, but we how how we can, can this is what always amazed me about Prabhupada because he was really simple in a lot of ways. You know, he didn't have a big education and all, and uh, he was quite simple. And you can you can tell from his presentation. He hadn't read everything out there that was to be read and come all equipped to deal with all the leading thoughts of the time and so forth. I mean, he liked to be contemporary and up-to-date as much as he could, but but um, he would say, you know, his old, air fool number one. I <laughs> don't know the difference between the body and the soul. And he actually knew the difference. Then before he could take everything, all learning, and just say, I don't, I don't care about that. It doesn't mean anything. You missed the Maya Purita Jnana. This will come. There are some people not interested in me, Krishna says. They're like this. This is one kind. They have a head full of knowledge, but they don't know what they're talking about. They have little knowledge, but they, they regularly do things that, as I said the other day, they know themselves are not in their own interest. What, what kind of intelligence is that? It's not subtle intelligence. It's not clear intelligence. We're seeing a way out of the problem, actually bringing, coming to a solution, finding real happiness. So these books, this is the revelation. This way we can say, this is conclusive. If you follow, you can become perfectly happy. I mean, are you even being offered a theory of how you can become perfectly happy in materialistic society? There's, I don't think there's even a theory. They, would, they don't think that such a thing exists even. It's a fantasy only. But you want it. So we should stay young instead of grow up and, and retire our youthful dreams. You understand? <laughs> All you could be. This book is so encouraging. The Veda, the Shastra, so encouraging. It's so overwhelmingly optimistic that it's, 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 it's mind-boggling to me how Indian philosophy and Vedanta has been portrayed as being pessimistic, deterministic, and lacking, and it doesn't give man uh, freedom and so forth. It's just so, it's so, it just really um, underscores how little interface, meaningful interface there's been between Eastern and Western minds, and how little real representation, for that matter, of, of the Eastern texts is about. And available in human society. So there's good reason for us to take him on his word here. Good candidate.
for the Godhead. Who else? Oh, yeah, a few others out there. Allah and Buddha's the no god god, <laughs> and there's Allah. I don't know if he has the form or not. I don't. I don't. Not sure about that. And then there's what Jesus' father, who has no face. I mean, there's not a lot of candidates out there. Why, <laughs> Why don't we vote for Krishna? Why don't we put him out there in the public? You know, you're a little. We like to hold back a little bit. We're a little shy because we're so intimidated by the modes of material nature and the marching on of insanity of material existence, materialism, and so forth, and all the big cities that we live in that, that looks like something's just about to happen. <laughs> something's going to happen. Better get up. Better just keep my. Something's going to happen here. There's nothing happening there. <laughs> I can tell you that. There's nothing happening. Better go better go to Aldari and just sit in and you know, look at the look at the trees and the birds or Madhuvan. There's nothing happening. Look that's it's gonna happen. Something's gotta be let's check the news, check the T V, check the internet. Something's happening. Somebody's getting elected, somebody's not. So nothing changes. It's the same old thing. Man there are, you know, developments and all of of, of intellectual interest, but as far as something really that can change the quality of life, you've already got that here in, in Bhagavad Gita. Simon Bhagavatam, it can radically change the quality of life. So when you try to apply it, but we're intimidated by the world. It's just a it's a it's a big it's what it is. It's a show. That's it. And it, this is this is Krishna's material energy. That's what it's like. It's a big magic show. You know the three. The three gunas is the three shells. Where's the pea? You know, like this. Okay, now watch. See, it's here. Okay, now it's here. Where is it? No, it's here. <laughs> That's what it's like. That's material existence. So they told it's endlessly mutable, constantly transforming. So interesting in that respect, but it's it's constantly transforming within a certain context. And the context is that nothing really changes. Birth, death, disease, and old age, still it's all there. It's all pervading. Krishna says, He summed up the material world in the Gita elsewhere in two words, Dukalayam Ashashvatam. It's a place of misery. And if you say, well, I, I like it, then he says, well, Dukalayam Ashashvatam. You can't keep it. How's that? So the more you like it, the worse it is. You can't, you can't, you can't remain within your grasp. So... so. This is a very uh, essential type of knowledge. This is what we can get from revealed scripture. We open the scripture and then with our contemporary mind we want to find so many things, answers to this. And what does it say about, you know, postmodernism? And what does it say about sexism in here? Look sexist. Uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've written in a certain time and so forth, but they're not sexist, they're spiritual, actually. They're actually spiritual books. This is the idea. It's a different language, yes, all, to, all together. So we should look for the right thing. And, and think for yourself, what, what are you looking for in life? What do you want? It all comes to this. Everyone wants to be happy, and they want enduring happiness. So make a plan how you'll get it. What plans are out there? What's being offered? This is a really a wonderful um, you know, lineage and, and uh, bathing to antiquity and... All the, it's all written down, so many nice books. It's, it's just like, it's, you couldn't pick a better school, so to speak. It's the Ivy League of opportunities. A degree, you get your degree in happiness. 
Mahabhu offering the PhD in happiness, his brain prayojan. So, I'm forgive me, but I'm troubled by this thing. Trying to talk to people about, you know, I see how they 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 look. You know, it's all in the book. You know, they're thinking I like the Bible or what or, or what it says. So I have to think of some thoughtful way to make the case, and to you also, so that you'll take take it seriously and read the books. And that should be your preoccupation. This is this is rather than television and internet and so forth. That's why I don't, I'm not writing a book. Because I'm, like, oh, I'm so ahead of all my students. They're, they're not catching up. They, they go, yeah, I read that. <laughs> Did you read that? Yeah, I read that one. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm reading them all myself again. I thought, well, I'll go read my own books again. So, time spent for this. It's good. I, I feel confident, at least. I hope you'll catch the, the idea. <laughs> Someone, I know someone will read them. I know you're all reading them and get inspiration too, but they can be read over and over again. I read Prophet's book so many times, so many times, and all of his tapes. I listen to every single tape as it would come out. And then when I met Pujapachita Marsh, I got a 400 tapes. I listened to every single tape. And you really had to listen to those because they were absolutely terrible recordings. <laughs> and his voice, you know, was hard, really hard to understand. I just listened to it. I could, there wasn't one point I would miss. I'd listen to it a hundred times, one sentence, if I couldn't understand it, to understand it. You have to have some eagerness, some interest in this to make progress. And why not? Why not interest in this? What, what would be... How will your time be better spent? This is the idea. So it's good we have these retreats, retreat from the world, a retreat we can retreat from fighting and struggling for material existence, take shelter of Krishna. So here he says, and we will conclude with this verse tonight, that I can remove this. It's my maya. I can lift the veil anytime I want. It's like I can give E equals MC squared and turn the whole physical world on its head if I want. This is my magic. I can do as I like. I can make him think the world goes around the earth. Then I can show him it goes around the sun. Then I can change it so that it's not going around the sun. We can do something else. This is my maya. Like I said, it's like this three shell. I can move it however I like and I can clear the whole fog of material existence. And I'm happy to do that, he said. Those who take shelter of me. Vishwanathakuritaku says, Krishna's speaking this verse and he's poking his own chest. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Something like that. But he's very generous too, he says. But anyway, you can go another way. Just factor me in some, to some extent. You can realize Brahman, you can realize Paramatma, you can go to Vaikuntha. It's all dependent upon me. It's, it's a little broader idea, but you don't have to even make me the, your Ishtadevata. But, as he explained later on, I'm behind every Devata, every manifestation of divinity. So the intelligent person, Gaudiya Vaishnava, goes right to him. And this within his own his own family. This is the idea. So, anyway, this Bhagavad Gita. The talks are a little simple. Any question? Yes. 
you you mentioned that this um, how you could see sattva rajas and tamas as intelligibility movement and mass wasn't it energy mass inertia yeah but uh, isn't intelligibility something that isn't really inherent in the object but in <laughs> depends which philosopher you listen to i think <laughs> how could one item be more intelligible than another well, I think that they all have intelligibility and make themselves known to one extent or another. To one extent or another is your question. I don't know if they make themselves m- more known or... I mean, some people stand out more than others, right? So, some things stand out more than others. Subjective, objective, I mean, there's a lot of thought about that since, you know, long, long time, for centuries about it, the questions of epistemology, right? How do we know what we know? I don't know that much, so... about all those arguments, but... Um, there is something called matter, objectively speaking, and it has... it, it is constituted of sattva, rajas and tamas, so from that we may deduce that it, 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 the object does make itself known to some extent. I suppose you would say that it requires the consciousness or the subjective observer to know it, but if it doesn't have any intelligibility, it won't be picked up on or something like that. Then again, it's a little bit of of an attempt to speak about Rajas, Thomas, and Sattvas in a way that gives some correspondence. And that may be an older way of thinking about how matter is observed. I mean, it has energy, right? It has mass. But they never said it has intelligibility. Perhaps. Maybe they do. I did. (laughs) So, it's in matter, and it's in our, pervading our psyche also, modes of nature. All right. Srimad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai, Sri Krishna Arjun Ki Jai.